0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
1: Hello, my name's Anna Ridley. Today on the podcast, we're talking about writing and the past. We're going back to the 17th century, into the English Civil War, to discuss reprobates with John Stubbs, and to Nazi-occupied Amsterdam for an extract from Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. But before all that historical fact, Sarah Blake, author of The Postmistress, sat down at the Penguin office to discuss historical fiction. The Postmistress is a story set during World War II, as bombs fall nightly on London, but America is yet to enter the fight. It's the tale of a fearless radio reporter, of the postmistress for a town in Cape Cod, and of a newly married wife far from her husband, and of one fateful letter that entwines the fates of all three women. Sarah spoke to her editor, Venetia Butterfield, who asked what happens when an author doing
2: research stumbles upon a good story. So um, one of the ways in which, um, you know, the, the more research you do um, can in some ways direct the fiction or direct the storytelling is when some kind of detail comes up and you think, oh, this is a fantastic scene, I want to I use this. And I had interviewed this woman who had lived in Provincetown um, on the Cape during right you know in the late 30s and 40s, and so she was the one who told me um, that there there were many um, people in on the outer Cape who were um, convinced that the Germans would would land on the back shore and march up through Cape Cod and and take Boston that way, cutting off the Cape, and that um, what seemed unimaginable was in fact. Um, a, a, a sort of strong belief held by uh, many, not all. I mean, there was there was certainly a, a great amount of skepticism. Um, so, that, but it was a, a, a source of debate in the town. And Provincetown is very much the very last. It's the last town, um, you know, on Cape Cod. You look straight. You look at the Atlantic, and that's it. There's no there's no sort of um, protection from them. And um, so the town was debating and debating and. This was probably in um, 1942. There was a sense of we're not in danger or we're, you know, so much. Do we need to get ready? Oh, I don't know. Um, And then um, one day a German bread wrapper washed on um, shore, onto the back shore. And it had clearly just come off of a U-boat and um that had you know been put out in the in the garbage backwash and it was at that point that the town understood that the germans were absolutely right out there that it was a you know there was a they there was a real um sort of possibility that they could arrive so when she told me that i just thought well that i have to have that in the novel i have to have this bread wrapper and it has to be this turning point and It's this, it's, it's a, you know, the, the whole, not only is it fantastic as a symbol, it's like, you know, the sort of daily life on the submarine, this is just some guy's sandwich that's just come up and, but, and that it's a a signal that, that the Germans really are right there. Um, and I tried and I tried and, and it just, every time I put it in, it was wrong and it it would divert the story into, you know, a cul-de-sac that I couldn't get myself out of. And so I had to leave it (laughs) behind though. I had written it many, many times.
0: And do you think that
1: historical fiction is kind of valuable because it brings a period alive to people that otherwise might not they might not read history?
2: I think it has value insofar as um it is true. I mean I do think this it is a little problematic because I know that um there's if if if, if it really is um well researched then the value is there because it is giving you a perspective that you might not have. I mean, this book really was a book about three women um, in the middle of a war. I mean, that, and so that was really what was animating um, how how the story went. The research that I did on the war um, really was, um, I, I wasn't trying to instruct anybody. I was trying to understand, you know, really understand Um, I wanted to get it right. When Frankie is in the middle of the Blitz, what would be impossible for her to be feeling? And the only way to know that would be um, to know really what was going on in the Blitz, to read as many, many um, accounts as I could. So of of the Blitz and of the sort of politics of the time, and there was never any thought that I was going to be instructing anybody at all about anything other than myself in order to write it better.
1: And how possible do you think it is with our modern sensibilities to get under the skin of someone who was alive 70 years ago? I mean, do you worry that your characters might behave in an anachronistic way?
2: Um, I do worry about that, but um, this book did take eight years and in part, I think that was because (laughs) I worried very much Mm -hmm. that um, in order for, I mean, in order for historical fiction to work at all, it needs to be utterly and completely credible and um, even if the if there are mistakes made in terms on on a small degree, readers need to feel that they are absolutely in a world where they that where their radar isn't you know where something doesn't raise itself as a red flag um, that that something's not credible and and I think that um, I did an enormous amount of research in many ways to in order to make the world um, seem completely um as as real and as accessible as our own. You know, that when you looked up from the book, you looked out the window and it could be nineteen forty. That I wanted that um that sense of seamlessness to exist. But that took an enormous amount of research in order to achieve
1: Did you make a positive decision to write historical fiction?
2: No, I never. Um, I never thought to myself, "I want to write historical fiction." I always, um, with *Grange House*, my first one, um, which was a Victorian novel. Um, I just wanted to write another Bronte novel, and with complete arrogance. And so, um, I ended up uh, being steeped in the 19th century. But with this one, um, it started because of the um, the idea of a woman not delivering a letter who worked in the post office, and then. Um, once I realized that that was the, the sort of central drama I wanted to work on, then um, i I realized it needed to be set at a time when that would matter, so it would definitely need to be historical and I kind of I, I actually never meant to write a World War II novel either since that is just a, a abyss of information <laughs> that I had to you know drown myself in happily um, but mostly I, I, um, the term historical fiction is sometimes uh, problematic because I think it connotes a certain kind of um, idea about history that you're you 're um, bringing a kind of um, pellet of of a time and and offering it to a reader in fact, um, I wanted to ask a question about war and about our connections to each other during a wartime, and so the, his, the, the history um, was a way for me to to ask these questions more deeply, in a way, and also, to a certain extent, to ask them um, from the, the um, comfort of distance.
1: Why do you think some kind of critics and academics are a bit dismissive of historical fiction?
2: That is a great question, and I do think that the whole genre of historical fiction is um, constantly up for grabs. And I think that there's a, there's a sense that historical fiction is neither good fiction because it's too um, much a kind of in fealty to getting a historical period, right? That people, again, want that pill. Like, here's the 19th century, and so here, read this, and then you'll know something about the historical fiction, which means that the fiction itself is not, it's not integral. The characters don't come first. It's not integral to um to the to the novel, or on the other hand, you have um, something that 's that 's not true to the period that 's just that is too fictional um, then there 's the third thing that I think historical fiction is um, dismissed as being lightweight and and doesn 't raise anything that 's pertinent to contemporary readers because um, because it has no gravitas. I actually think that some of the most interesting writing that 's going on right now is um, in, his, in 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 um, when authors decide that they want to um, just take on another time and and move around in it and make it their own. So it's not necessarily, it's historical fiction, but maybe we should just rename it. It's fiction that's set in another period, you mm-hmm. know, and where you can start to engage and play a little bit in, in terms of what readers' perceptions are and, and a story that, that is taking place in a time that that is slightly different and sets you off balance at the same time as you think you, you know, you might know it. So, you know,
1: and will you continue writing historical fiction?
2: Um, I, the, the novel I'm working on now uh, goes back and forth between 1959 and the present 2009. And, um, so I'm, I think I will never, um, leave behind my interest in, in the past as a kind of, um, for me, very interesting um, place of uh, you know it's a it's a place that I like to animate. I like to go in and um, sort of surround myself. I mean, it's an act of ventriloquism to go in and surround myself in something utterly different from my own, and then set it work walking. In some ways, it's um, it's the most fun of all. But I am always, I think, interested in the ways in which past lives and present lives are um, in. Uh, conversation in some way or another and i think my fiction is going to always do that so even though this novel i'm working on now is 59 is um i mean i would hope not completely historical since that's when i was born but um it is that this this idea of the ways in which um we are always in some ways echoes of our ancestors or um, they are always some, you know, fore- foretellings of us, that, that, that the layering of past and present is always going to be something I think I'll do.
1: That was Sarah Blake, author of The Postmistress, who found out that even a great title can be tested by good research.
2: I, I interviewed a, a postmaster um, and he was the one who told me right away, in, Eng- in America, who said there's no such thing as a postmistress. We don't call anybody a postmistress. I don't care if they're man, woman, or baboon. The
1: historian John Stubbs's new book is called Reprobates, The Cavaliers of the English Civil War. England in the 17th century was far from boring, and the book covers everything from disastrous foreign forays to syphilitic poets, from political intriguing to ambitious young playwrights keen to curry favour with the king. John sat down to tell us about two men in particular from his vibrant cast of characters at the centre of one of the most destructive moments in our country's history.
3: I was interested in telling the story of the, of the civil wars that basically took over the history of Britain and Ireland from 1640 through to 1660 and beyond. I, I wanted to find a, a group of characters, a group of, a group of witnesses who could take me through that time really. I mean, the war had interested me for a long time before. Our landscape is so placid now that that it's very strange to think of you know military action ever taking place in the home counties, in the Midlands, you know, in the uh, in the border counties. And uh, of course, it was a, it was actually a shock to the people of the mid seventeenth century as well to start looking at their land in that way as territory to be fought over. A uh, huge shock to the system uh when when you know every road every hill became a flashpoint or a checkpoint a vantage point and that interested me a lot and uh, but then uh, another thing that another thing that preoccupied me was the almost archetypal division which emerged within the country at that time in the mid 17th century uh, the country split between the supporters of the english parliament and the supporters of the king Parliament felt that the King of the Day, King Charles, had uh, violated the historically sanctified rights of the English subject. Equally, King Charles felt that Parliament was just getting beyond its place. On the parliamentary side, he had uh, roundheads, who were basically Puritans. On the king's side, he then had uh, what became known as cavaliers, royalists. Now, Cavalier took on new life in, in the English language basically as a term of abuse. Because while literally the cavalier represented the ideal of what a gentleman should be about, a knight in arms, chivalrous, um, accomplished in all the, the key fields of renaissance endeavour, uh, when you called someone a cavalier in the 1620s or the 1630s, in the decades that is before the Civil War, he wasn't saying, ah, there goes a supporter of the king, a perfect gentleman, because there was no such thing at that time. Everyone was a supporter of the king, or they basically ceased to have a political life. A cavalier at that time basically meant a good fellow, a gallant, a blade, or, as more puritanical observers would have it, a decadent, a rogue, a gambler, um, a spoiled brat, and uh, it was that it was that sense of the, the cavalier that I wanted to explore in this book. And um, as it happened, they uh, the, the kind of prime specimens of that class of person were actually incredibly articulate witnesses. They were they were frequently writers, dash off a sonnet or two, a song or two, um, and then uh, and then head off for a, an evening's dancing and gambling. Now, in the months before the war, a certain not- notoriety was achieved by a chap called Sir John Suckling, who was gentleman of the king's bedchamber, well known about town, moderately famous as a producer of elaborate and lavish private theatricals, well respected in fact as a poet and an essayist, but more famous still as being the greatest gambler in London. He was well known for uh, losing incredible sums at both cards and bowls. Suckling was a man of arms. He prided himself on being a knight, on, uh, on being an active man of the world. Unfortunately, as a slight timbered man, in the words of one contemporary, a rather, rather diminutive character, he tended to lay down challenges that he couldn't quite answer for. Notoriously, once in 1634, in an argument over a woman, he got into an awful scrape with a terrible hard case by the name of Sir John Digby, who basically corresponded to what the Cavalier should have been about. He really was a man of arms. He was one of the most dangerous characters in Caroline London. And uh, uh, when Suckling went after the, the woman he loved, he basically beat Suckling to a pulp Suckling was disgraced for not challenging Digby to a formal duel. Instead, he went into hiding, nursed his bruises and plotted revenge, which took the form of an attack on Digby outside the Blackfriars Theatre in London. One afternoon, when Suckling set about his rival with up to a dozen, a dozen men with swords drawn, He didn't realise that he'd picked the wrong man to pick a fight with. Uh, Digby beat off all of his attackers, killed two or three, wounded Suckling, who again skulked into the shadows. In the months before the war, as Parliament tightened its grip on the king uh, and seemed to be on the verge of taking complete control of the state, Suckling took a leading role in a plot to recapture the capital for the king. Needless to say, because he was, as his, uh, his peers were only too glad to point out, such a terrible cavalier, Suckland's plot went terribly wrong. And he ended up fleeing London for his life on a charge of treason, wanted by Parliament, and ending his days in a rather miserable fashion in Paris. No one quite knows what happens there, but it seems that he died either as the result of of an unhappy accident or maybe even took his own life. Suckling is what people of the 1630s and early 1640s saw as being a cavalier. Not a great hero of the Civil War. He was a dandy. He was a frivolous character. He was someone who wasn't quite the real thing. It's quite an unfair reputation because Suckling, despite all his faults, was in fact a rather sensitive character, a good friend, and could on his day be a, be a subtle thinker and a, and, and a fine poet. Perhaps the other leading reprobate of this book is Sir William Davenant, who was of humbler birth than, um, than Suckling, the son of an Oxford vintner, who was in fact also. William Shakespeare's godson, because Shakespeare, when he, when he rode from Stratford over to London, would stop off for the night at the tavern in Oxford, owned by Davenant's parents. Shakespeare's relationship to the family was so close that Davenant rather wistfully in later life, when he was a, he was a playwright and theatrical producer himself, speculated that he was in fact Shakespeare's natural son. And this led a generation of scholars on on a very long and elaborate wild goose chase to establish Davenant's mother, who was a a noted beauty of the time, uh, as being the dark lady of Shakespeare's sonnets, which she almost certainly wasn't, as she almost certainly wasn't, in fact, um, Shakespeare's mistress. But that's another story. He lived through what were wild times in the 1620s, when a series of uh, desperate, madcap and really irrational uh, military expeditions were organised by the then uh, Prince of Wales and young King King Charles. Davenant like Suckling lived through all of this and then also through years of what he and his contemporaries remembered as years of peace and plenty in the 1630s when his early attempts to make his name as a playwright and a poet Uh, Bore fruit when he got a secure place in the the court of King Charles And eventually rose to being the unofficial poet laureate His worst misfortune to date before the the outbreak of the Civil War Was to uh, catch syphilis sometime in the early 1630s And to overdo the standard cure for the time Which was a treatment involving the inhalation of mercury He snorted this mercury to cure his dose of the clap, and um, uh, unsurprisingly, it basically burnt away the septum of his nose. And uh, the poor chap, more or less, lost lost his nose. And this became Davenant's distinctive feature. The absence of a feature became his hallmark, as it were. And for the next 30, for the next 30 years, basically, he was constantly wound up and jeered by contemporaries on both sides of the political divide, parliamentarian and cavalier, for, for this injury, this injury of his lifestyle. Even though uh, it was in the London of the time, it was quite common to, 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 um, to see someone with, um, with this disfigurement uh, swift at the end of the 17th century describes the snuffling masses of uh, syphilitic veterans. In spite of this, no matter what befell him, he always got on with the job in hand. And when the civil wars broke out in the early 1640s, unlike his friend Suckley, who basically imploded, he got through the time uh, with a mixture of cunning and an exceptional practical intelligence. Technically, he held the rank of uh, lieutenant general of the ordnance in the king's northern army, but this falls a long way short of describing all the tasks which were entrusted to Davenant during um, one of the most amazing civil war careers in a, in a decade of amazing amazing adventures. Uh, he was a, a spy, a smuggler, a gun runner, an emissary, a pirate, but above all. When the king lost the war and when Charles, in fact, paid for defeat and his intr- intransigency following it with his head, Davenant was one of a, a group of diehard cavaliers who did their best to um, recapture the throne for Charles's son, Charles II. But he also got on with his life. He got on with his writing. He made the best of exile. He... He was presently captured, put on trial by Parliament uh, for his life. But he was basically so popular that the the parliamentarians, the Republicans as they were then, just didn't have the heart to put him to death. And so they let him out and they let him get on with his old old job of um, uh, poet and theatre producer. What I've tried doing in this book is to... Look again at the Cavalier story, and to, to go back to the, uh, the origins of what people of the time, people who actually lived through the Civil Wars, actually thought and saw in the idea of a, the idea of a cavalier. But then also to explore these, less rep- these characters who are less representative of what we have in mind of, of cavaliers. You know Davenant being a, a prime example, but the, a host of others fill the book.
1: That was John Stubbs and if you'd like to find out more about his book Reprobates or any of the other books on the podcast just visit our website at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk This month Penguin is releasing a new downloadable audio edition of one of the most moving and widely read books ever published Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl. In 1942 The teenage Anne and her family were forced by the occupying Nazi regime into hiding in a secret annex in her father's office building. Her diary of that time is a heartfelt record of tension and struggle, adolescence and confinement, suffering and survival. Here's audiobooks editor Ravina Barjwa to explain a little bit about the challenges involved in producing the new version, and to introduce an extract from the book itself, read by Helena Bonham
0: Carter. Um, well, yeah, we're, we're quite excited this month because we're publishing a downloadable audiobook edition of Anne Frank's Diary of a Young Girl, which is read by Helena Bonham Carter, and it's a it's a kind of updated recording. We published this recording about 13 years ago, but then there was a further five pages of the book which were which were never brought to light until. The, I think the late 90s which basically her father had hidden those pages because they were quite unflattering about her mother and he didn't want those to be in the public domain but they found these pages at the end of the 90s and the Anne Frank Foundation decided that they should be part of the diary and those are the pe- passages that were missing from our audio edition from the 90s and those are the bits that we have now re-recorded. So the business of republishing the audiobook um, has been quite interesting in itself. Um, We originally released The Diary of a Young Girl on cassette. We had to do a bit of work on the master recording, which was stored in our archives on a sort of old DAT tape. And um, we'd been storing this in our archives and it had deteriorated a bit, so we had to do a bit of wizardry to try and clean up the, where, where there might have been sort of scratches on the tape or parts of it that had kind of gone wrong in, in over time. Um, then obviously there was the whole process of, of fitting the new bits in with the old bits. Obviously Helena's voice had changed over the last sort of 14 years um, so we had to get her to try and listen to her old voice and try and match her new voice to the old one um, so, that there, so that there wasn't too much of a difference when the new passages were dropped in, then the whole thing was digitally remastered so that we can, you know, have it for digital transmission. And so yeah, it was a bit of sort of technical work, which which required um, the use of good ears from our engineers. Yeah, so I think we're just going to listen to an extract of of the recording, and in, this is in this extract. Um, Anne talks quite intimately about her feelings towards sex and the way that adults possibly try and hide things from, from t- children but when they probably already understand certain things. Um, it also talks about her sort of growing relationship with another boy that was um, in the annex with her called Pater. And it's quite a poignant extract. It, it, you can kind of get a sense f- for the kind of real, real human side of...
4: of of Anne. Saturday, the 18th of March, 1944. Dearest Kitty, I've told you more about myself and my feelings than I've ever told a living soul, so why shouldn't that include sex? Parents, and people in general, are very peculiar when it comes to sex. Instead of telling their sons and daughters everything at the age of 12, they send the children out of the room the moment the subject arises and leave them to find out everything on their own, Later on, when parents notice that their children have somehow come by their information, they assume they know more, or less, than they actually do. So why don't they try to make amends by asking them what's what? A major stumbling block for adults, though in my opinion it's no more than a pebble, is that they're afraid their children will no longer look upon marriage as sacred and pure once they realise that in most cases this purity is a lot of nonsense. As far as I'm concerned, it's not wrong for a man to bring a little experience to a marriage. After all, it has nothing to do with the marriage itself, does it? Soon after I turned 11, they told me about menstruation. But even then, I had no idea where the blood came from or what it was for. When I was twelve and a half, I learned some more from Jacques, who wasn't as ignorant as I was. My own intuition told me what a man and a woman do when they're together. It seemed like a crazy idea at first. But when Jacques confirmed it, I was proud of myself for having worked it out. It was also Jacques who told me that children didn't come out of their mother's tummies. As she put it, where the ingredients go in is where the finished product comes out. Jacques and I found out about the hymen and quite a few other details from a book on sex education. I also knew that you could keep from having children, but how that worked inside your body remained a mystery. When I came here, Father told me about prostitutes, etc. But all in all, there are still unanswered questions. If mothers don't tell their children everything, they hear it in bits and pieces, and that can't be right. Even though it's Saturday, I'm not bored. That's because I've been up in the attic with Peter. I sat there dreaming with my eyes closed. And it was wonderful. Yours, Anne M. Frank Sunday, the 19th of March, 1944. Dearest Kitty, Kitty, Yesterday was a very important day for me. After lunch, everything was as usual. At five, I put on the potatoes, and Mother gave me some blood sausage to take to Peter. I didn't want to at first, but I finally went. He wouldn't accept the sausage, and I had the dreadful feeling it was still because of that argument we'd had about distrust. Suddenly, I couldn't bear it a moment longer, and my eyes filled with tears. Without another word, I returned the plate to Mother and went to the lavatory to have a good cry. Afterwards, I decided to talk things out with Peter. Before dinner, the four of us were helping him with a crossword puzzle, so I couldn't say anything. But as we were sitting down to eat, I whispered to him, ''Are you going to practice your shorthand tonight, Peter?'' ''No,'' was his reply. ''I'd like to talk to you later on.'' He agreed. After the washing up, I went to his room and asked if he'd refused the sausage because of our last quarrel. Luckily, that wasn't the reason. He just thought it was bad manners to seem so eager. It had been very hot downstairs and my face was as red as a lobster. So after taking down some water for Margot, I went back up to get a little fresh air. For the sake of appearances, I first went and stood beside the barn window before going to Pater's room. He was standing on the left side of the open window, so I went over to the right side. It's much easier to talk next to an open window in semi-darkness than in broad daylight, and I think Pater felt the same way. We told each other so much, so very much, that I can't repeat it all. But it felt good. It was the most wonderful evening I've ever had in the annex. I'll give you a brief description of the various subjects we touched on. First, we talked about the quarrels and how I see them in a very different light these days, and then about how we've become alienated from our parents. I told Peter about mother and father and Margot and myself. At one point, he asked, You always give each other a goodnight kiss, don't you? One? Dozens of them? You don't, do you? No, I've never really kissed anyone. Not even on your birthday? Yes, on my birthday I have. We talked about how neither of us really trusts our parents and how his parents love each other a great deal and wish he'd confide in them, but that he doesn't want to. How I cry my heart out in bed and he goes up to the loft and swears. How Margot and I have only recently got to know each other and yet still tell each other very little since we're always together. We talked about every imaginable thing, about trust, feelings and ourselves. Oh, Kitty, he was just as I thought he would be. Then we talked about the year 1942 and how different we were back then. We don't even recognise ourselves from that period. How we couldn't stand each other at first. He thought I was a noisy pest and I'd quickly concluded that he was nothing special. I didn't understand why he didn't flirt with me but now I'm glad. He also mentioned how he often used to retreat to his room. I said that my noise and exuberance and his silence were two sides of the same coin, and that I also liked peace and quiet, but don't have anything for myself alone except my diary, and that everyone would rather see the back of me, starting with Mr Dussel, and that I don't always want to sit with my parents. We discussed how glad I am that he's here, how I now understand his need to withdraw and his relationship with his parents and how much I'd like to help him when they argue. But you're always a help to me, he said. How? I asked, greatly surprised. By being cheerful. That was the nicest thing he said all evening. He also told me that he didn't mind my coming to his room the way he used to. In fact, he liked it. I also told him that all of father's and mother's pet names were meaningless, that a kiss here and there didn't automatically lead to trust. We also talked about doing things your own way, the diary, loneliness, the difference between everyone's inner and outer selves, my mask, etc. It was wonderful. He must have come to love me as a friend, and for the time being, that's enough. I'm so grateful and happy, I can't find the words. I must apologise, Kitty, since my style is not up to my usual standard today. I've just written whatever came into my head.
1: And that's all for today. Thank you for listening. Again, you can find us on our website at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk or if you'd like to get in touch, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is podcast at penguin.co.uk and we're also on Twitter as at penguinpodcast.
0: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.